Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. Good to be here today with my co-host, David Campbell. I am Jake Sweetman, and it's a pleasure to have you. Hope you're all doing well and having a good week so far. David, how are you doing? Well, I'm in England, Northern England. And uh, are you in I'm Durham? I'm in Durham. You can almost see the cathedral out of the window that I'm parked beside, but not quite. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So, yeah. Thousand is it years old. It is one of the greatest sites in Europe. Cathedral of Durham. I'm Googling it as we speak because now I want to look at it. Almost a thousand years old. Wow. Cathedral of Durham. Wow, that looks absolutely stunning. William the Conqueror. Oh my gosh. That is gorgeous. Holy moly. And, and home to some very prominent uh, biblical scholars, uh, mostly conservative biblical scholars, uh, right up until recently, mm. uh, N.T. Wright, who is the bishop here. That's right. He was Bishop of Durham. I forgot about that. Yep. Has he stepped down from that role? He stepped down from it to go back into teaching, but um, he was a very good bishop and very well regarded. Obviously, his influence was far beyond the Church of England. Right. To the other churches, more like ours, including the one that I started here, um, really appreciated his uh, spiritual leadership in the city. Wow, it's on a river. That is stunning. How is the, how is the Church of England doing these days? It's either great or terrible. It's That's one or the other. In it, that's what people in it tell me. Uh, the parts of it that are doing well, that are represented by churches like Holy Trinity, Brompton, and mm-hmm. Alpha Course, and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, are... Uh, you know, are flourishing mm-hmm. and doing great and planning new congregations and uh, the parts of it that have just remained in kind of dead traditionalism are dying off. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, I think it's a real battle shaping up for, uh, you know, the soul of the church, where it goes. Uh, They've taken most, some pretty liberal positions or progressive positions on, uh, on some matters like sexuality and well, gender. Am I correct? It's it's no, not necessarily it's it's in the middle because there's a battle between people that are very liberal. I see. So not officially, growing, but there are people in the Church of England who would like to take it that direction. Uh, oh, there certainly are, uh, right. but there are also others, including now many uh, people in positions of influence, right up to including the Archbishop of Canterbury, mm. who um, you know are far more conservative, right, and who realize that you know, that road is the road of extinction. Right. So, you know, um, here's hoping that there, I mean, all I can say is when I lived here 40 years ago, um, uh, there, I didn't give out a whole that much hope for the Church of England, but God has definitely done some extraordinary things. There are many Anglican churches you'd walk into, you, you know, it could be, uh, you know, the type of church that we usually frequent, like a C3 church or something, there isn't much difference. And I mean, maybe the difference is in the surroundings if they've got an old building. But as far as the worship and preaching is concerned, it's very similar, which I, I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm here to, I'm here to open up. I did open up. Uh, I had the honor of opening up um, our own church, church that I started in 1980, 
uh, has opened a second building. They already have one really nice building, but they've outgrown it. So they've opened up a second building. Wow. It's a stunning auditorium, wow. state of the wow. art. And uh, it's just such a joy to see it full of people and full of young people and people coming to Christ and the Holy Spirit moving. It's just been absolutely amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Will, will they keep their previous building or are they going to sell that? Yeah, or you... They got both. So they're doing uh, like multi-site. Well, it's it's uh, the multi-site are a couple hundred feet away from each other. Oh, wow. So uh, they're using the older building for their children's and youth uh, ministry Great. and the congregation's grown too big for, for that. So they you know, moved over across the, literally across the parking lot. Wonderful. The new, new place. So cool. it's uh, very, uh, very exciting to That's see. That's awesome. What's yeah. the pastor's name there? Pastor's name is Alan Bell and mm -hmm. he has hacked away faithfully for 30 years uh, and just, uh, carried on in his vision and and it's uh, he has done an amazing job so amazing uh and they've 30 got, years of faithfulness no overnight explosive growth just plotting so along making disciples and doing the work of it. god yeah taking territory he's doing it he's a hero he is a hero yes <laughs> And let that be an encouragement to every pastor that listens to this podcast. And there are many of you. Most of you do not have stories that are overnight explosive growth. And maybe you get discouraged and you feel like you're doing things wrong or you're, you're in the wrong place or the wrong context. And you just have to be willing to stay faithful and do what Christ commanded us to do. Make disciples and work in, in, in step with the Holy Spirit. You're going to bear fruit just like Alan is bearing fruit. It's so awesome. I love that. It's really great. All from seeds that you sowed, sir. Well, me and others. So, yes. But you was, the lead, you was the lead elder. <laughs> I was the lead elder. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, well, I'll persuade you on this before the Lord returns. And, you know, after the Lord returns, it'll be very clear that I was right and you were in the wrong. So I'm, I'm already persuaded. I We have... <laughs> Uh, we have no difference in this regard. Uh, it's just terminology, which I can very easily come around to, uh, but I'm already persuaded. We operate uh, in very much the way that you described in that, that previous episode. I'm, I don't I'm just kidding. I'm kidding you. Oh, no, I know. Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> like making unilateral decisions. I, I think it's not only does it obviously have its dangers, but it's, um, it's too much weight. You know, obviously sometimes a decision has to be made and you can't, you can't do everything in, uh, you can't make every minor decision in, uh, it doesn't always require a committee, but on the whole, I, I'm totally with you without, without question. So uh, we've been going through this book from Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, which is a helpful book. And Nancy Piercy's starting point is uh, somebody who was discipled by Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer wrote, I always forget exactly how to say the title. Is it How Then Should We Live? Is that right? How should how we now? then live, I think. How then, how should we then live? Yes. I always want to go, how now then should we live? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. And he popularized the description of secular culture as thinking along a dualistic line in terms of upper story, lower story, and how there's public fact that's agreed upon. These are things that can be worked with together in terms of building society. And then there's private value. And those two things are to be kept separate from one another, which of course doesn't 
work because we're all bringing our private values into the public space, whether we realize it or not. She's taken that uh, observation and is pointing out how that applies to a lot of the way that we think about things pertaining to the human body, hence the title of the book, Love Thy Body. So she goes through all different kinds of subjects, uh, subjects that you would anticipate, you know, a book like this to talk about things like abortion, which we covered last time. Uh, in chapter three, she covers uh, euthanasia, the fertilization of embryos um, and how those are treated. And then even gets into transhumanism, which is really interesting. Uh, and with the recent developments in AI feels pertinent, um, maybe more so than ever. I also just watched the recent Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Um, and so it, as I was reading it, it reminded me a lot of that. I don't know if you saw that movie or not. Are you are you a Marvel movie fan, David? Well, I have one or two kids that are. But uh, so I went with my son, James, to see a couple of them. But that hmm. was some time ago. I see. So to say I'm a fan would not be accurate. Right. I'm not saying I'm opposed. I'm just yeah. not. You don't watch in, them. Up. Yes, totally. But you wouldn't you. expect me to be into it, would you? Not necessarily, although you do surprise me sometimes. <laughs> um, so we could go through uh, each of the things that she talks about in this chapter, euthanasia, embryos, and, and transhumanism, and, and perhaps we will. It, it's the same basic premise that she's applying in terms of we have the upper story, which is the mind and we have the lower story which is the body and how that ties into personhood theory and we set all of these arbitrary benchmarks for when somebody qualifies as a person just because somebody is biologically human doesn't mean that they are a person and therefore this is what we use to justify abortion this is what we use to justify euthanasia this is what we use to justify our treatment of fertilized embryos and uh and, what we're as, using, as, what as some, we as we progress further into it, uh, I'm sure we'll discover that it bears on the transgender issue because if you regard the the physical body as sort of secondary and of lesser value, whoever the essence of who you are, the person, quote unquote, that you are is unrelated to your physical body, therefore it stands to reason that you could declare yourself to be anything from you know, uh, male, female, something in between, or a monkey, as far as that, as far as that goes. Um, and so, uh, it's the thread of that um, kind of runs through a lot of these things, and nobody has ever subjected subjected the uh, the concept to rigorous analysis. It's absolutely impossible to prove that the person is distinct from the physical body. And as a matter of fact, the reason you can't prove it is because it's patently ludicrous. <laughs> because if you don't have a physical body, you don't have a person that's floating around independently of the physical body. When the body dies, the person dies. So it stands to reason that the person and the body are intimately connected, even though who we are transcends the merely material, mm -hmm. who we are cannot be divorced from the material. And Christians are sometimes accused of being 
you know, anti-body. But actually, it's the reverse. Christians are one who affirm the physical body. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, the reason we do so is because God, we're created in the image of God, as Genesis says, male and female, which Mm -hmm. actually means we're created as physical (laughs) beings in the image of God. And the whole concept of the Hebrew Bible from beginning to end is that we are holistic beings um, and that our physical dimension is an integral part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And where we get the separation of body and spirit is not from the Bible, but it's from uh, Greek, certain elements of Greek philosophy. And I've always maintained, and in my book called Exodus, I've written a whole chapter in it, which seeks to demonstrate how critical theory, social justice theory, um, actually has its roots in Greek mythology and Greek religion. And, uh, and, and it goes back to the same kind of um, realm as this personhood theory does. Uh, so we as Christians, uh, although we may be portrayed as, you know, party poopers and you can't do this, that, and the next thing with your body, whatever you want to do, actually Nancy Piercy points out that the people who separate body from person wind up despising the physical body mm-hmm. and, and placing very little meaning on it to the point where they have no compunction about killing people, whether it be the unborn children or even newly born children or children who are disabled uh, or, um, you know, the elderly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, that's why Planned Parenthood was founded by a person who believed in exactly those things who was influenced by Hitler. They Mm -hmm. they both drank from the same cup. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, that's a bit of a rant, but it puts it, it gives maybe a bit of perspective for people that missed the last broadcast. Broadcast. Yeah. Essentially we are living in the logical conclusions of our beliefs is what Nancy wants to, we all do. And, uh, so we shouldn't be surprised when we arrive at some extreme positions because those positions are actually just the next step of, of what we believe as materialists in our culture. If the body is, is no more than a hunk of meat, um, then why not discard it or why not transcend it? You know, when she points out things about the the transhumanist movement, why not try to move beyond it or perfect it in some way uh, that which makes I, it which something I also else? Find, um, I also find kind of weird in that if you really are a materialist, which all these people are, in other words, oh, there isn't any eternal reality. It's just mm-hmm. this material world. Where on earth is this mystical idea of a person that floats outside of the material body? Where does that come from? You know, mm-hmm. that that doesn't even correspond to your worldview. Uh, it's inherently completely self-contradictory. Yes, yes. Well, I think because uh, we all want to be, we yeah. all want to be treated as people with dignity. And so there has to be some kind of arbitrary definition that we come up with to justify our own existence. <laughs> well, the problem um, with the, all these people is they, they want to be treated with dignity, but they don't want to treat other people with dignity. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas our mm-hmm. job as Christians is to treat, treat everyone with dignity, whether they agree with us or not. Yeah, exactly. And she talks about that too, you know, in the Christian worldview, to, to use the example of somebody with a disability, she says that a disabled person is exactly that. They are a person who is to be treated with dignity and love and who is worthy of life. Whereas if you ha- come from a secular worldview, you can't logically say that every 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 human is worth the same as the next, um, but that worth rises and falls on the basis of uh, their their uh, mental function and what they contribute to society, and those things become arbitrary, and, and you can assign value as you please. She talks about this. She says the concept of personhood was first explicitly proposed in 1968 by a group of 13 medical doctors and professors who met at Harvard Medical School. They offered what came to be called the Harvard Criteria for Establishing When a Patient Has Died. In the process, says science journalist Dick Teresi, the Harvard Criteria switched the debate from biology to philosophy. You are dead not when your heart cannot be restarted, you can no longer breathe or your cells die, but when you suffer a loss of personhood. And so uh, it it's... It's an arbitrary thing because basically they can say you're dead before you're actually dead based upon certain criteria that you no longer meet. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty sad, it's a pretty sad world to live in. Um, and even a scary world to live in when people are no longer assigned to you the the worth that you are due biologically because they don't see you as fit of that worth they don't see you as as meeting the criteria whether you are an unborn child or a disabled person or an elderly person and some of these examples might seem kind of extreme I, that's one of the things that i, I kind of keep coming back to is people might hear this or, or maybe they'll read this book and they'll go well, this is this is quite you know an extreme example this is something that we really have to be worried about um and i would say well one in in lots of instances these these things are happening the obvious example is abortion which we have sanitized you know to to be something that we could talk about with low levels of concern if we're not switched on to what abortion actually is um but b even if some of these examples like transhumanism or or the growth of assisted suicide even if some of those things do seem extreme again they are they are the logical conclusion of these views. Like it's not, it's not a, a far leap to justify these sorts of behaviors uh, on the basis of the worldview of these people. And so it's, it's something to be genuinely concerned about. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, a- absolutely. When you're sanitized, prospect of death, I mean, there were lots of people in Germany that were sanitized to the fact that Jewish people were being slaughtered. Um, and... Right. Uh, when you sanitize that, uh, I mean, I think, look at the way that the Russian leadership treats its soldiers. They talk about sending them into the meat grinder. They're sanitized mm. to death. They don't care. They place very low value on not only on the people that they're attacking, indiscriminately killing women and children and so on, but even to their own people. It's just, uh, but... Russia 
has a long culture of unlimited abortion under communism. And that's all part, I think, of, I mean, Stalin killed off multiple millions, more than Hitler even did um, in his rule. And so you have a, a whole culture, a whole society of death hmm. that has become uh, used to death and disrespect of human life. And therefore, you know, I, I don't blame the nations in Eastern Europe for fearing that they'll be the ones that are next on the firing line mm-hmm. uh, because they, they're, they're close to it. They, they've been under it and they, they know what it's like. So it's, uh, it's frightening. The, you're right. The world we live in is a frightening place, perhaps mm-hmm. more frightening than ever before. Let's, let's talk about something that underlines our willingness to pursue the things that we do even though those things bring about death and perpetuate a culture of death in our society. One of the things that, that Nancy points out, which I think is, is correct, is uh, that one reason issues like euthanasia are seemingly sensible to people today is that we no longer have positive ways to respond to suffering. She says the biblical answer to the problem of suffering and death is that they were not part of God's original plan. Evil entered into creation at a particular time in history, which caused a cataclysmic change, distorting and disfiguring the original creation. That's why evil is so hateful, repulsive, and tragic. When we recoil from sickness and death, our response is entirely appropriate. It's important to remember that God is on our side. He did not create evil, and he hates it even more than we do. But Christianity also teaches that God himself entered into the human condition and experienced suffering and death by execution on a Roman cross. In doing so, God inverted death into a means of achieving new life by his wounds. We are healed. Whereas if you are a materialist, uh, suffering is pointless. It's, it is your ultimate enemy. Whereas a, as a Christian, we understand that suffering is often a doorway into the newness of life. We, we suffer with Christ. We die with Christ and we take up our cross and we die to self. And in that, on the other side of that is resurrection life and the experience of resurrection life even in us uh, through, the, through the Holy Spirit uh, today in, in this age. Um, but as a materialist, suffering is, is your enemy. It's, it's completely pointless um, and has no purpose. And so we want to minimize suffering as much as possible. It's why we are so therapeutic in our approach to life. Our, our aim can be nothing, nothing more than how do I feel as good as possible? How do I experience as much pleasure as possible? And the moment my capacity for pleasure begins to diminish, that means the value of my life also begins to diminish. Um, if I can no longer per- pursue pleasure, then what is life even about and why not discard it? You know, that, that is a way of, that's a suicidal way of thinking really, isn't it? I mean, it's, mm. uh, if we teach people that, um, I also think that part of the issue in relation to suffering is the flip side of suffering is, as you point out, pleasure, or let's, let's call it convenience even. Um, <laughs> so we want a life that's convenient, uh, and convenient means free from impediment or suffering. Um, and so therefore, I mean, this is part of the abortion thing. Uh, it's not convenient for us to have children at this time. 
Uh, so we're going to protect ourselves from that inconvenience. Uh, and uh, so you kill someone else. In our theology, you kill someone else mm -hmm. for, for the sake of your convenience. And of course, carrying it over into euthanasia, it's not convenient to have to support grandma and grandpa, to have to keep on going and visit them, to know that they've got a million dollars in their will for us, but we need it right now, but they're preventing us having it by still being alive. That's not convenient. Mm -hmm. So euthanasia begins to look pretty good. And uh, I think it's fair to say that in some places like Holland, um, that there have been instances of mm. people placing pressure on aged parents to, you know, versus a suicide because for monetary reasons. I mean, human nature is just wicked. It's it's deceitful. The heart is wicked above all things, the Bible tells us. And, you know, when we disrespect life and we place our own pleasure and convenience at the center of everything, that makes us very dangerous people, dangerous people to those around us. And what inevitably happens is the people with the most power are the people who rule. So, you know, uh, the baby, the defenseless baby is, hasn't got, you know, or the disabled uh, person or child or the elderly person who's infirm and so on. They don't have any power. It's the people with the power that call the shots on life and death. And that's, that's absolutely demonic. It's a demonic way of thinking. And what we don't realize is that once you allow these things into society, they have a way of getting out of control and you mm. yourself may wind up being the victim. She cites the example of Holland in this chapter. She says, for the last few years, the country of Holland has already had euthanasia vans. A Dutch right to die organization offers a mobile euthanasia service with teams traveling around the country to deliver lethal drugs or injections to patients whose own doctors have ethical objections to helping them die. So uh, that's frightening. It's very frightening. Euthanasia bans. And we have a government in Canada, I think, that would go down the same road. And uh, this is not a political statement. I'm just praying that government will be removed, uh, not for political reasons, but for moral reasons, uh, or those within the government that are proposing those kind of things would be... What's the distinction that you draw there when you say that you're saying that for moral reasons, not political reasons? Well, How because do you define I, don't, this? Not, I, don't, I don't want to be portrayed as being partisan political in the mm. sense of a right-wing or a left-wing, uh, you know, approach, uh, right-wing, left-wing, center, whatever. Those things often pertain to economics. Um but there are more. So when you say you're not saying something for a political reason, you mean that you're not saying it in the sense of uh, I want to throw my hat behind a certain party. I mean, uh, I judge. To me, every go ahead. Well, go. Uh, I think a Christian leader. I don't want to die, get off into another discussion, but I think it's very dangerous for a Christian leader to endorse a. Uh, you know, a political point of view that's based on an economic system and say, mm -hmm. well, you know, capitalism is evil or socialism is evil or, you know, we've got to have more private enterprise or we've got to have more government involvement. I mean, <clears throat> those are things that Christians in politics can take a position on for economic reasons. But we have to not confuse those type of issues 
with moral life and death issues like abortion and euthanasia, mm-hmm. where you could have someone who held left-wing political views being pro-life, or you could have someone who ha- held very conservative political views economically being pro-abortion. I mean, that does happen. So, um, I think if you I expand think, uh, the definition of politics, though, to be more than just what you think is the best economic system, at the end uh, of the day, we can't get away from the fact that we are making political statements when we stand against certain things. I think one definition I read of politics, which I think is the, the best I've come across, is politics is the promotion of the truth. It, what, it, it is our stance on what is true that is going to create the most flourishing society. That might pertain to economic matters. Um, in fact, yeah. it absolutely will. And I think it's okay for Christians, even Christian leaders, to have views on that. Um, but absolutely it pertains to moral things. And I think whenever you're applying morality to society, it is political. Um, and it is, I think, maybe even uh, it promotes that dualism that Nancy Piercy talks about if we try to keep the two things separate. I mean, well, I, you think- I'm just saying that I think we have to be very careful when we start dabbling in the realm of economics uh, and making moral judgments out of that, because you can make moral judgments yes. and even biblical judgments uh, in favor of left, right, or center, whatever. But there's there's no confusion when it, or there should be no confusion for the Christian when it comes to issues like abortion, abortion and euthanasia, that should be right. uh, something that- And I, I don't think you can escape those being political statements. I think that pu- public morality is well, political. You can, you can define it as a political statement, but uh, I, uh, I, I, I think that we can take a position on those moral issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think preachers should, I think it's appropriate for preachers to- say, look, vote for a candidate who is pro-life. I think that's quite appropriate. Um, I don't think it's appropriate to say vote for this party or vote for that party. I think you just say vote for a candidate who is pro-life or the candidate who's most pro-life as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that I'll, I'll, because, and the reason is because if I associate myself with economic issues, then other believers can come along and say, well, actually, um, don't you think biblically that, it, you know, there's grounds for a different economic viewpoint than the one you take? And they'd be absolutely right. So I'm not going to absolutize that. I want, I, I don't want to waste my, my, you know, I want to die on the right hill and mm-hmm. I'll die on the hill of, of abortion and euthanasia. Um, and I'd vote for a candidate who who was with me on those issues, even mm-hmm. though I disagreed with their economics. <laughs> Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I it, just wanted to parse it out because sometimes, um, sometimes it can be confusing, you know, when we talk about not being political as Christians. I, I think well, the fact right, is... We, yeah. what we, we want to avoid a position where churches are identified with a particular a political party. party that never goes well ever i agree with you yeah yeah and i don't even think that you like I, for me personally and, and maybe i'm wrong in this but i've never stood up in my pulpit or posted yeah. anything on my social media that says you should vote yeah. for the person who is this um to me such 
such things should be obvious, especially if, um, if people understand, uh, the issues. And so, you know, but maybe I need to be more outspoken in that regard. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I don't have any issue talking about abortion or I wouldn't have any issue talking about euthanasia, um, or g gender ideologies, things like that. You know, so, but I, but I also understand that when I talk about those things, you can't help but be perceived as being political because these are the issues oh. that, that our mm -hmm. society is, you know, obsessed with protecting. No, I agree. And, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I die in that hill. If someone says, well, that's a narrow political viewpoint, I would say, well, I don't think it is, but right. I can't control, I can't control your view of me. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's a matter of eternal moral truth. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And politics is the promotion of the truth. <laughs> I, I well, think that's a great definition. If politics is the promotion of the truth, then uh, we're a long way from what it ought to be <laughs> in most countries. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I got that from, um, where did I read that? I read that in uh, the foreword to one of Carl Truman's books, um, his Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, but he had a shorter uh, version of that book um, called Str uh, Strange New World, which is obviously a play on Brave New World. Um, and the guy who wrote the foreword to that, in fact, I have it right here. He says, if our sexuality is our deepest and most important inner truth and politics is about the promotion of the truth, then it was inevitable that sex would be politicized. So essentially, because of the inward turn we've taken when it comes to the seeking of truth and we now live in a, a postmodern world where what is true for me is my truth and what's true for you is your truth. Uh, and sexuality is one of our most important inner truths. Then it was only a matter of time before polit the political realm had to step in and protect certain sexual preferences and classes. Um, so it, it's a very keen insight, I think, into how we got to where we are. So, and for those of you who haven't read Carl Truman's um, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, highly encourage you to read that. Uh, and if you've got a little bit less time on your hands, then this shorter version, Strange New World, is um, is good as well. So anyway, I, I digress. We've, we've wound up in an entirely different book <laughs> at this point, um, but along similar lines. Where were we? I think we were talking about suffering. Am I right about that? You were talking about suffering, yes, sir. And then you were commenting on suffering as well. And yeah, well, I think that, you know the the simplicity of the point is that in a, in a materialist worldview, suffering is completely pointless, and and life is only about ridding ourselves of suffering, which is which connects into the transgender movement as well, because the the motivation behind sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy and all the things that go along with that is the minimization of mental suffering. There's, there's a, yeah, yeah. a suffering that's going on in the mind and it's put forward that the remedy for that is to change the body. And again, that's that personhood theory thing, right? Like the body is the thing that needs to be messed with. Right. Because the that body that's, doesn't, doesn't have relation to who the person is. Exactly. Yeah. Except it does. <laughs> yeah. And you can't get away from it. Once upon a time, the answer to that dilemma would have been to let's address the issues going on in your mind. Now the answer is to let's address the body. 
the issues right. that you feel are with your body. And that's something also that Carl Truman points out. What does it look like to have a high view of suffering? Not in the sense that you, you know, are, are trying to glorify suffering in, in any kind of way, but to understand that God can use our suffering. What, what does it look like to take a Christian approach to suffering with these things, whether it be the inconvenience of having a child or the inconvenience of having to care for the elderly or the, uh, the difficulty of maybe experiencing something like gender dysphoria. Well, I think how does a Christian um, walk those things out? You know, Nietzsche, uh, the 19th century German philosopher, who was the inspiration for Hitler, among other things. Um, he despised Christianity because Christianity, in his view, glorified weakness and mm -hmm. he glorified power. And you can see where Hitler got, you, you know, that from or why he liked Nietzsche. And so for Christians, uh, we are called into a suffering world uh, as Christ was. He gave up the might in order to serve. And uh, we are called to serve people and lay down our lives and risk our own comfort and convenience our comfort and convenience comes second to the call of God because Jesus himself set that example for us. And that's why we can be redemptive influences in the world. It's why, you know, most of the modern hospitals and educational institutions were founded by Christians and across the world, wherever Christian missions went, educational institutions and hospitals followed because the goal of the gospel is to elevate the dignity of people. Uh, and uh, to give ourselves and sacrifice for, for the good of other people. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Christianity understands that ultimately the way to uh, be first is to be last. Jesus said it. You know, the way that to attain eternal life with all the benefits of that is to be a servant in this life. Um, and with the assurance that there is a greater reward if we're able to, you know, live a life of sacrifice, that the reward we receive more than compensates, even in this life, which I believe it does. Because, it, you know, I don't think, uh, if you do the poll of people who are rich, I don't think the rich people have ever been known to be happier than poor people. Sometimes mm -hmm. the, the reverse is true. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we tend to think that, if we just reached this idealized state where everything was fine for us and we didn't have any challenges to face in life, that we'd be perfectly happy. Mm -hmm. It's a delusion. And so, uh, God, it's not that Christianity exalts suffering. It's that Christianity realizes that uh, we live in a broken world, a world that God didn't break, that we broke. And in order to redeem it, we have to go through suffering. So, mm -hmm. In, in fact, suffering is not um, was never God's intention. That we screwed up, we right. made a mess of it, and now God has to suffer, and His people suffer in order to bring redemption. He became poor that we might become rich. Mm -hmm. That's the key. It's not that we exalt suffering, but it's we recognize we live in a world of suffering, and we have to be prepared to sacrifice in order to bring people back to what God intended in the first place. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a tension, right? 
just as you said, Christ became poor so that we might become rich, which is that, I think, first or second Corinthians. Um, and, but our understanding of that has to be that we join Christ in his poverty in many respects. In other words, as you said, we sacrifice, we die with him. There is a death to self that comes along with being a servant of others. Um, but in that we know because of the promise of resurrection and the reality of resurrection, we know that we do not ultimately lose, not in this life nor in the next. In fact, Jesus himself said, those who have given up family and houses will in the age to come and now receive a multiplic a multiple a return uh, of multiplicity um, of those things. Not in the sense that you'll you know own 17 mansions, but that you will inherit the family of God and never be without a home, never be without a family. Um, and however else God decides to bless and provide for you, great. However faithful you can be with what he's given you and increase it, great. Um, but no matter how much you increase, Christians are never trying to run away from the embrace of servanthood. And with servanthood comes a certain level of suffering. Um, and that's what redeems it. Without the view, without the belief in God and without belief in resurrection, there's, n there's nothing to be gained by embracing suffering. There's only pain and pain has no upside, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which, which makes life really dismal because <laughs> life has a lot of pain. Well, it does. Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, the fact is that if we follow Christ in the way of the cross, the joy um, that we receive far outweighs any cost. <laughs> Whereas people who spend a life trying to avoid inconvenience, um, suffering, people who try to insulate themselves, you know, wind up, I think, living very unhappy lives and probably lives full of fear and without yeah. a lot of friends. I mean, that alone, you know, that it's worth being a Christian just for the friends you get out of it. <laughs> because church is or should be the most relational place on earth. And we have our, when you know, we have rich uh, riches, richness of friends. Whereas when you look around you, there's tons of people that have none <laughs> or very, very few. It's just really sad. We were visiting our daughter who lives uh, near here, one of our daughters and her husband. And, you know, they're just starting out. They're young and they're renting a, a house in a really quite a rough area and you listen to the way that the people are yelling at each other and talking to each other and yelling at the kids and all the rest of it and it's just you think this is not the way god designed people to live <laughs> uh, well i think there's something really deep to that right because apart from god people can only be a means to an end i i mean the the basic belief of darwinianism uh and uh things like survival of the fittest means that your use for another person is just for survival, whether that be through procreation, you know, with a man and a woman coming together at bottom, it is just about using one another for, uh, for the, the perpetuity of your species. Um, and the same would be said true on, on a, 
a, a non-romantic level, just on a friend level. Ultimately, people are just a means to an end apart from God. But with God, people aren't a means to an end because God is our end. God, God is who we're aimed at, and He is sovereign. He's ruling over the universe, and um, that means people genuinely can be uh, present in our lives to love and to serve. And I don't need to get anything out of them. Um, and that that is an entirely different paradigm of viewing people. And whether people realize it or not in a materialist worldview, um, you, the best you can do with somebody is just to use them. Mm. And it's always going to be self-serving in some way. Um, well, sure. Which is if life is all about protecting myself from suffering and living the most, the life that's most convenient for me, mm -hmm. then you're all, all you're really doing is using everybody around you. And fortunately, even people who have that worldview, fortunately, they don't consistently live it out. Usually, you know, there's enough um, good in them that, mm -hmm. because, you know, people that do nothing but use other people uh, as horrendous. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the logic of, exactly. you know, the kind of, philosophies or worldviews that we're being presented today, including exactly. critical theory, which is, you know, everybody for himself or themselves or, you know, he, she, they, them, whatever. Everybody is in it for your own benefit and you want to protect against anybody intruding on what's going to benefit you. And, uh, it's just the most extreme version of this is is what actually Nancy talks about in this chapter when it comes to harvesting of organs from unborn children, um, stem cell uh, applications from uh, embryos. This this is the the ultimate uh, evil demonstration of using people as a means to an end. Um, sure, and, and or in the Chinese Communist Party that harvest organs from prisoners you know it's 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 absolutely satanic i did not know that that's oh that's been going on for years there's no mm. it's a public fact i mean mm. there's no debate about that mm. uh so yeah it's awful mm -hmm. yeah thank god for christianity that that can liberate us from such a tyrannical worldview of seeing people as something to use well, it's and pretty, rather brings it's us into depressing. the <laughs> domain of pe seeing people as someone to serve um, yep. and uh, in that is joy, true joy and uh, Christianity can save the world there's no doubt about it Okay, I think that's enough for today David thank you as always for a conversation thank you everyone for listening I do encourage you to grab a hold of this book Love That Body, it's a great read and uh, as always if you have time give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts leave us a review, we'd love that Follow along with us on YouTube as well, uh, youtube.com slash good theology. God bless you all. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.